You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. For decades, milk has been fueling women marathon runners as the OG performance drink. And in the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers takes us on a journey of self-discovery as she meets several groups of empowered women runners to find out what drives them, what fuels them, and what pushes them to go the distance. And in the process, she learns that she too can be a distance runner. You can watch the series at runningsuckstheseries.com and register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hello, welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Max Linsky. I am here with just one co-host today, Aaron Lammer. How are you, sir? Dad's out of town and we're having a party. Evan got married. Evan got married this weekend. Congratulations to Evan and his wife. Max officiated. I did. Officially. I officially officiated. I am a registered minister emeritus with the city of New York. Uh, today is also a big day in um, our lives. I would say a bigger day. I, I'd say that this news trumps the marriage news. Um, we are releasing the new long-form app for iPhone and iPad today. Uh, we've been working on it for a very long time. Um, this is like a this is a whole new thing for us. We like to build things that we ourselves would like. Uh, one of the things we built was this uh, podcast, and um, now we're building a new series of services that are available first for iPhone and iPad users. Totally free. Totally free. I mean, just stop right now. Hit pause, go download it. It's free. What do you need more information? But if you are interested for more information, um, we have a lot of cool new features in it, one of which I'm really excited about is following writers. So if you hear someone on the show and you're like, wow, that person's really fascinating, I definitely want to read everything they write, then you go into the app, you follow them, and anytime they publish a new article anywhere, anywhere on the web, you'll get notified. Um, so this is a great way. We're, what we're trying to do is allow people to branch out. We've been doing these um, sort of curated recommendations on longform.org. We're allowing you to personalize your own longform by following writers, publishers. You can follow friends and see articles they're recommending. It's a totally self-contained reading universe. Yeah, we're really trying to build a home for this kind of writing. Uh, anything published anywhere on the web is in there. You can follow any publication. You can follow any writer. Uh, and the reading experience is great. It's clean. It's minimalist. Uh, I'm just going to stop talking about it and encourage you to explore it by downloading it. Tell a friend. Uh, please, we, we don't have a big marketing budget. This is how, this is how we get the word out. So please uh, do our job for us. Let people know. Send us feedback. Editors at longform.org. You should also know that this app uh, nearly cost Aaron his life. <laughs> He's herniated discs. Yeah. He had an ulcer. Yeah. Uh, it's uh, it's been a rough it's been a rough year. We've put in we've put a, put every dollar and every minute we have into this. Um, so please uh, give it a run. Who's on the show this week? Buzz Bissinger. Oh my God, Buzz Bissinger. I have been trying to get Buzz Bissinger on the show since we started. I've sent him an email basically every six weeks for I don't know two years, uh, and he finally. 
I can't even say that he accepted. I, I believe relented is the right word. Uh, and I went down, I took the train down to uh, his house in Philadelphia, and uh, we talked for a long time. We talked for a long time. This is a uh, slightly longer than normal episode. Also, one note, my microphone uh, had some trouble towards the end, but... Uh, I don't know. Just listen to it. I, I, I really enjoyed it. For, any, for anyone who's not familiar, Buzz Bissinger wrote Friday Night Lights. He wrote a quite incredible article about his addiction to uh, Gucci clothing um, in the last year. He's uh, He's been on a wild ride. And Won he's, a Pulitzer Prize. He's, uh, he's had a pretty incredible career, both sort of living in public and his journalism. Yes, absolutely. Uh, do we have any good sponsors this week? Do we have good sponsors? This is a, probably our number one week for sponsors ever. We got some great sponsorships. And they're about. doing great stuff. Tiny Letter, the great yeah. people at Tiny Letter are doing a writer's residency. Yeah. At the Ace Hotel in Palm Springs, 10 days, all expenses paid. They're going to fly you there, put you up, pay for your meals. All you got to do is write. Go to residency.tinyletter.com to apply. One note when you do, I am judging this contest. Along with uh, Susan Orlean, who's been on the podcast before, and Roxanne Gay and Dory Shafrir, we are going to pick the five writers that get to go do this awesome residency. Aaron, you cannot do it. Damn. Anyone who's interested at home, uh, Max likes dad nonfiction. <laughs> uh, we got another great sponsor, uh, Bonobos. One thing I can say about Bonobos is that I wore a Bonobos tie to Max's wedding. I'm on theme. See how see that? I'm on theme. Uh, from their signature chinos and denim to their tailored suits and dress shirts, Bonobos offers a full line of great-fitting, expertly crafted men's clothing backed by a painless shopping experience. And for a limited time, Longform listeners can get 20% off their first order with code LONGFORM. So you can go to bonobos.com, that's B-O-N-O-B-O-S.com, and you're going to discover the difference that a better-fitting and better-looking wardrobe can make. That's true. Yeah, that works. <laughs> that, that, that's real talk. We've got one more, uh, one more sponsor. Another awesome contest from our friends at EA Sports. The newest version of our favorite video game, FIFA, is about to come out. It's coming out next week. And in anticipation to celebrate... What is this, uh, FIFA 15? FIFA 15. Yeah. Uh, EA Sports and Longform are teaming up. We are trying to find the greatest soccer articles ever written. Uh, look in the show notes. There's a little form. Send us a link. When you do, you'll be automatically entered to win a free Xbox One and a copy of FIFA 15. All you have to do is give us a link to your favorite article, new or old, and you might win a free Xbox. I want to be. I want to get in on this. You're this barred from that contest too. Bumass PS3. Okay, here is Max with Buzz Bissinger. Buzz Bissinger. Hello. Hey, Max. It's nice to finally see you after dodging you for, for so a long. year and a half. <laughs> for so long. I really, uh, I sent you a lot of emails. A lot of emails, and I finally said, you know, the only way I'm going to get Max off my fucking back is to do this, because he would send me an email like every two weeks. How about now? How about now? How about now? I was trying to stick to like six weeks, every six yeah. weeks. But, but I am a, um, I love long form. I think it's, it's great for a profession in which, you know, there's concern that long form is actually dying, particularly with the way the internet is so I, I i'm actually happy to do it to talk about craft or whatever well i appreciate it sure. i uh certainly appreciate you also i'm, I'm we, we should say i'm in your house it's a monday morning right jackhammers are going in philadelphia that's right i'm sitting in your apartment it's all very gracious of you seventh floor seventh floor well i'm happy to have you and i'm glad to see that you actually exist <laughs> not just some random and you're probably happy to see that i exist well. i had some confidence that you exist <laughs> i had some confidence that you exist um i've been thinking i, I just uh took the train down here and i was, I was thinking about where to start sure. how to start 
there are many places to start. And then uh, I walked into uh, your house and just above your head, it is impossible to miss, is a giant Friday Night Lights book cover right. poster. Right. So I guess maybe we should just start there. Sure. Here's a moment I'm interested in about Friday Night Lights is uh, the moment you decided to go. Uh, the moment I decided to go was in the summer of 1988, and that was after securing uh, permission from the town of Odessa to go, to spend a season with a football team, Permian High School in Odessa, Texas. So I wasn't doing it blind. I mean, the gestation of the idea really came about, honestly, when I was 12 or 13 years old. My, we used to get Sports Illustrated, and I remember reading this article about a high school quarterback from Abilene, Texas, named Jack Mildred, and he was the god of the town and paying, playing in front of 15,000 people. And, you know, his name was on every neon sign, and I just was fascinated. You know, wasn't that much older than me, really. Did you play sports as a kid? Yeah, I played football. I loved sports, but I, I just couldn't imagine, you know, a high school kid playing in front of that many people and being that important. So it stuck with me. The Last Picture Show was a great influence, somewhat ironically, in that last scene, uh, the guy's leaving town to go to Odessa to work in the oil field. So I guess all things come back around. And then it really hit. I drove. I had a Neiman Fellowship at Harvard, and I drove out west with a friend, and we took the southern route, actually through Texas, and went through all these little towns. And they were kind of blown away economically. They were down on their heels. And then you would go by the football stadium, and they literally were gorgeous. Uh, you know, there'd be a Texas drought, and they were, it was the only place that would had was being watered. Um, right. A lot of them had been built the, during the WPA in the 1930s. And it just hit me out of the blue. It wasn't some sort of conscious, contrived thing that these were bigger than stadiums. These were shrines. These were temples. And those Friday night lights really did have an enduring, powerful impact on small-town life uh, in America. And And the religion of... That small town football is something that it appealed to you even as a kid. Like there was something. Yes, yes. The, the shrine was also. I always wanted to live in a small town. I mean, I don't know why. I mean, the closest I ever got was I would go to Boy Scout conventions with my grandmother, you know, in such beautiful places as then as Dallas, which was hideous, or Cleveland, which was even worse. I wanted to live in a small town. And part of it, too, was at the Philadelphia Inquirer, which was great. It was the heyday. But I wanted to sort of blow myself up and challenge myself and do something you know, really, really different and out of the box. And this idea really appealed to me. And then I was lucky enough to find the right place. And frankly, people say, well, it must have took months of scientific research. It didn't. It took about a week. I had very little. I, I do a lot of ideas on instinct. And I just knew Odessa was, was the right place. And a, a lot of roads led there once I decided you had to do it in Texas. You also, so you were, how old were you when you moved? Oh, God, to see, 1988, I was 34, I think, you know, about to turn 35. I had uh, twin boys who were five, and I went there with uh, my fiance. The marriage didn't last, but I did, the kids did, and the book did. So I guess it all worked out. It feels like uh, there's a lot of, there's some risk there. I mean, you you just won a Pulitzer, a right? Uh, I'd won a Pulitzer several years earlier. Oh, okay. Uh, Gene Roberts, the great legendary editor, was really against it. He was really pissed off. He thought it was a he kind of trashed the idea. But I remember sitting in his office and said, well, Gene, I'm going. I mean, you know, and I, I, I get two weeks off or I can go in two weeks. Those are union rules. And I, you know, I never pulled a union rule. I just felt in my heart this was the time to do it because I was on the editor track at the Inquirer. I think I could have gone far. Who knows? But uh, I, I felt if I don't do it now, I'll never 
ever do it. And, you know, I ended up quitting my job at the Inquirer. And, you know, who knows? Who knows what was going to happen? I couldn't go back there. The deal I had made with uh, my fiance and we got married during the year was we would go to wherever she got in medical school, which happened to be in Milwaukee. You know, so you were out either way. Yeah, I was I was out. Um, it was like you got a year and then she was going to get medical exactly, school. Exactly. So, you know, there, w- there was a lot of risk. Now, I got a decent advance. Um, so it wasn't, you know, I just just going by the seat of my pants. But, you know, the risk was it wouldn't work out. And if it didn't work out, you know, what was what was I going to do? When did you know it was going to work out? I think I always knew it would work out if I could pull it off because the season was kind of magical. You know, a a lot of my father always said you have to be close to be lucky. Um, And I knew I was close. And then, you you know, in the book business, you just need fortuitous luck. It was a great story. And Odessa was almost like a third world country. It was just so out there in Texas. It had very much aspects of the Wild West. Uh, It was insulated, and the football season, there were so many ups and downs, not just in terms of of the football season, but in terms of the sociology and the black running back Booby Miles getting hurt, and then the racism that poured out, and then the, the, you know, you're always looking for storytelling, you're looking for narrative, and the ups and downs of the season were unbelievable. They almost don't make the playoffs. They play a team uh, that ended up getting, you know, a Dallas team that enormous controversy that was and ended up being stripped um, of the trophy. And that game was like a race war. Everything that you wanted to happen could have happened. Now, did it all come together magically? No, it was kind of a disaster at the beginning. It was sort of a mess. It was a mess, not sort of a mess. It was a mess. How so? Well, you know, I thought like, well, I'm a book writer now, so I'm not going to outline. It all has to be inspiration. I don't need any stinking outline. I'm a book writer. It's all going to come from my heart. I'm going to get up early in the morning and it's just going to pour out and then I'll have a few bolts of scotch. Uh, So I just started writing. I set an arbitrary date, April 1st, basically 1989, um, about four months after the season ended. And I wrote and I wrote and I wrote and I wrote. And my editor called and said, I got to see what you're doing because, you know, there is a deadline. And I sent it to her, a wonderful editor named Jane Isay at, at Addison Wesley. And normally, you know, editors, they take a week, they take two weeks, they take a month, they may take a year. You know, editors don't really work that hard. No offense, book editors. <laughs> uh, Jane got back to me literally a day later, which was an indication of something. And it was an indication of she said, so when are you going to be in New York next? And I said, I don't know. You know, we're moving now, and you know, stuff's going on. It was now the middle of the summer. We got to get to Milwaukee. You were in Odessa at the time. Yes. You were writing it while in Odessa. Yeah, which was a which was impossible, actually. Yeah. As I as I found out, and she said, Well, I think you need to come to New York tomorrow, or if you can't tomorrow, the next day. I got to see you within a week. Well, then I know there were some problems. And she said, Look, I don't want to insult your feelings. When I got to New York, she said that the rate. We're going. This is going to be longer than William Shire's The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich. And no offense, Odessa's not Nazi Germany. It has no engine. There's no narrative drive. It's going on forever. You spent 150 pages on the history of the town. I'd read about 30,000 words. But th- it was then at that moment that I learned a really valuable lesson about how to write books. Because Jane said, look, you, I have some index cards. Let's go through the key characters, the key games, the key themes. And, and um, I would hem and haw. And she said, no, come on, let's go. What's rising to the top? What are the, well, who are the players? Well, Mike Winchell, the quarterback. Don Billingsley, the running back. Booby Miles, the black running back. What are the key games? Well, you know, Odessa, 
high versus Permian. It's an intercity war, intercity rivalry. You say, well, why? It needs something beyond that. Well, you know, to me, it shows the socioeconomics of the town. I say, all right, keep going, keep going, keep going. And then we put it all up on a cork board. And then the book really came alive after that. And then I went back, really stripped it out chapter by chapter and then scene by scene, section by section within the chapter. And pretty much about two to three weeks in, I knew this thing can really, this thing can really go. You just felt, and it was organized, it was moving, it had the narrative line that I was, that I was looking for. Was it, I mean, it was about structure and narrative, or had you found something about the story that you didn't know was there? Like, reading back through, you know, I've read a bunch of interviews from that time and shortly after, and 10-year anniversaries, and 15-year anniversaries, (laughs) and 20-year anniversaries. And, uh, right, I'm trying to milk it for every possible anniversary that I can. Well, I'm interested in how you feel about the thing now. Actually, it's going to be the 25th anniversary. Yeah. Isn't it? Oh, my God. I'm so old. You're going to have to do this whole conversation again. What the hell happened? If people oh. email you enough. <laughs> I get emails every week. I mean, I got an email today. from a, It was a lovely email from a teacher. I don't know where, saying I'm teaching it to, to my junior junior students in high school and a lot of special ed kids. And it was very poignant. She said... I'm trying to find an audio of the book, but I can't. And the only one available costs $150. And do you have one? And I give her one. I don't know if I have any extras. But I, I get emails all the time. you know, and, and I've accepted the fact that I'm Mr. Friday Night Lights, at least to, to some degree. You found, you found peace with that? More peace. I mean, you know, sometimes I have, sometimes I haven't. I mean, I've written about, written about that. And... Uh, it became kind of a noose at times. It was. It's really is impossible to top. The book still sells. It sells. I don't know forty between, and it sells very well in, in Britain. It sells about forty thousand copies a year still. I think there are two million copies in print. Uh, TV show, movie. I'm waiting for the musical, the the Passion Play. Yeah. Uh, you know the what, Sunday morning show, Sunday morning TV sermon. Yeah, the one man show, Brian Cranston, because he can obviously do a Texas accent. Uh, but I have come to peace with it. Look, it's a great thing. It's, 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 as my father said, it's a good problem uh, to have. But, you know, any writer, you want to top yourself. You want momentum. You want to keep going. And, and it is difficult because we burn out. And, you know, I'm in an age where you wonder what's really left. It gets harder and harder. Book business is really, really hard. Um, they're much more demanding in, in terms of ideas, so you're trying to think really commercial. And frankly, everything you come up, come up with, it seems like someone else is is doing it. So I have no books um, on the horizon. They're, they're There's demanding. nothing in the works. No, they're they're demanding. They're they're lonely. They're isolated, and I just can't come up with an idea that I can really uh, wrap uh, my arms around. You know, Father's Day was very proud of, but it didn't sell very well. And you know that's that's a knock against you. You know how it works. They go on Nielsen, and they it's only, they, it's only uh, you're only as good as your last book. Yeah, although you know, I think with Friday Night Lights, I've gotten a number of shots, and you know, I think after uh, Father's Day, I think there's there's a reticence, and you know, does that mean I have to write another? I I don't know. I don't know. You know, Is I mean, I, I I could have been Lauren Hillenbrand. That's what I said. <laughs> uh, but my tastes were probably too. My taste as a writer, in terms of commercialism, I've had good success with. Friday Night Lights and, and Three Nights in August, but I'm eclectic. I mean, I you know I didn't write sports all my life. Right, I, you didn't keep writing like they, like no. you didn't do the next season with another team. No, I, I if I'm known for anything, people call me a sports writer, which I'm not. Friday Night Lights, I don't think was a a sports book um, at all when I write 
something related to sports, I try to write much more about sports than the games themselves. I don't really give a crap about the games. I think they're kind of boring, frankly. When you went to go write that book, did you care more about the games? Like, did you expect it was going to be a story about race and class? And I mean, it, it, it gets messy quickly in the book. Well, it does get messy quickly because the season got messy quickly. You know, you're, you're aware of the themes of the town, but you don't know what's going to uh, play out. Obviously, I, I didn't predict that, you know, Booby Miles, the, the great black savior of the team, was going to get hurt in preseason and certainly had no idea of the outpouring of, of racism, um, you know, that would occur. It was only until I spent time in classrooms that I realized just how appalling, appallingly bad uh, education was in that school. So things, uh, you know, play out. When the coach almost didn't get in the playoffs and the for sale signs in his lawn and the letters the editor saying basically he's a bum and they should be fired, he lost three games by a single point. You know, you see these themes uh, develop. But there was always an eye towards making it, you know, sociological. You know, when I was at the Inquirer, I mean, you know, Gene Roberts didn't say much, but when he said things, you listened. And he said, you know, you really the the best writers, the best reporters, zig while others zag. And that always stayed with me. So I wanted to try to do something, you know, beyond just the one dimension of, of, you know, this game, that game, this game, that game. That was important to me and storytelling and narrative and trying to develop uh, character. Tired of talking about the book? Eh, you know, no. I mean, I probably, I, I doubt I'm saying anything original about it, but, <laughs> you know, no. Uh, uh, maybe I don't know. I don't know. You know, uh, sometimes I get tired of talking about writing. Uh, you know, I just sort of thank you for doing the podcast. I sort of just do it. Although I did something at Penn that I really enjoyed. I mean, I, there's a wonderful, th- wonderful thing called the Kelly Writers House at Penn, and I was a fellow there, and they really had read my books very carefully. And what was actually delightful was the book they cared about the most. There were two. Was a prayer for the city, which was about urban Philadelphia through the eyes of the mayor Ed Rendell and Father's Day. Friday Night Lights was not mentioned at all, which was really nice for me because you know you kind of remember, hey, I've actually written, hey, folks, I've written something else. You know, no, I didn't do the TV show, but I, you know, no, I didn't write it. Although at this point, I take credit for everything. What we got heck? to sure, but you know, Friday Night Lights opens a lot of doors. I mean, it does. Well, it sounds like I picked the right place to start. You did. Hey, it's Max. I'm going to pause things for a second and tell you about one of our sponsors this week. Uh, it's a fitting sponsor, given that today's episode is with Buzz Bissinger, man of style. Uh, Bonobos. Bonobos is the sponsor. They are a men's apparel company, and they offer a full line, everything from wash chinos, denim, shorts, swim, and casual shirts, to suits, dress shirts, and blazers. Uh, Bonobos has a free shipping policy and a stellar customer service team that makes the whole shopping experience stress-free, super convenient, Way, way more pleasant than going to the store. Uh, For those of you who can't wear jeans to work, check out the Bonobos Weekday Warriors. That's non-iron dress slacks named after every day of the week. You can pair the Weekday Warriors with one of their dress shirts, which are available in three different fits. Slim tailored, slim and standard. Uh, Getting dressed for work really couldn't be easier. They're offering our listeners a special deal. If you use the code LONGFORM, you're going to get 20% off your first purchase. So whether you're looking for something casual or office-friendly, that's 20% off with the offer code LONGFORM on your first purchase. Free shipping all the way. Bonobos, 
They bring expert craftsmanship, a perfect fit, and incredible service to men's clothing. Go to bonobos.com. Find your fit today. Use that code LONGFORM. That's B-O-N-O-B-O-S.com. And thanks very much to them for sponsoring the show. And now let's get back to Buzz. Can we talk about Father's Day? Of course. Father's Day is a book you wrote about your son, Zach. Yes. You guys took a cross-country trip. Right, in 2007, I think. Yeah. For people who maybe haven't read the book, can you tell us a little bit of about which Zach? there are many. I, think. <laughs> I read too the book. many. Uh, I had twin boys, Jerry and Zach. They were born under very traumatic conditions. They were 13 weeks premature, 27 weeks, and uh, Jerry was weighed weighed one pound 14, and Zach weighed one pound 11. Uh, Jerry was in intensive care for two and a half months, but really, miraculously, and as miraculously as Zach had no residual problems. Jerry just was named uh, principal of his high school in Haddonfield, New Jersey, right outside Philly. He's doing remarkably well. He's engaged. Um, Zach had trace brain damage because of being the second one out and um, oxygen deprivation. And, you know, sadly, I forget when, but within a decade, they, they've discovered a way to, to expand the lungs uh, within the womb. Oh, wow, so, I didn't realize So he that. would have been, I think, the drug is called surfactant. And that's made a tremendous difference because this is this before was a tremendous problem. But, you know, life goes on. Um, Zach had a lot of learning disabilities. Zach's comprehension is 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 low, but he's got a very eerie mind. His ability to recall dates and memories is um, incredible. Um, And the and the book was a legitimate attempt to really spend concentrated time with him. I don't think I'd spent a month or three weeks with him straight because I got divorced from their mom, who's terrific. I don't think I spent a month with him straight by myself. I don't know. Long, 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 long time. Not since he was two years old. And it was an attempt to get to know him, and it was an attempt to reconcile certain feelings that I had grown up with. Disappointment, sadness, why is he different? And it wasn't about not, you know, some people say, well, that means you don't love him, and you're a shithead, and you're brutal. Well, it wasn't. It was honest. And I think a lot of parents of special needs kids feel that way, and I wanted to express that. But he really is a blessed creature. He's funny. And he's, you know, people say, what did you learn? I don't know. I learned that the moon comes out every night. I don't know what you really learn in life. But what he is is incredibly observant, much more observant than I ever really realized. He just soaks things in. And you know, because he'll come back to repeat them or mimic them. He pays a lot of attention to language, uh, even if he doesn't quite know what it means. Uh, my wife, Lisa, worked in Abu Dhabi for several years. And, you know, it was traumatic. And when she went off to the Middle East, uh, I had Zach with me, which was nice. And we pulled into the garage, and everything's very, very quiet. And Zach looks at me and says, well, a couple empty nesters. You know, which, <laughs> A, was the perfect thing to say. And B, he says, Zach, where did you learn that? And he says, well, my mom said it. And he, sort of, he didn't really know what it meant, but he sort of knew uh, what it meant. And all during the trip, he, he did take care of me. I mean, I, you know, I've worked on it a lot, but I could snap out and have a bad temper and get frustrated easily. And he was the one really who centered me and consciously tried to calm me down. I'm not surprised that people ask you what you learned because it, it did feel to me like it was just as much about you as it was about yeah, it was. Zach it and, was. and you trying to parse your own right. feelings. The start of the book, you're incredibly hard on yourself. Yeah, I mean, I tend to be very hard on myself. And I don't know how many people know. I mean, I had a very rough time of it almost a year ago, a year and a half ago. I went into, went into rehab because, you know, 
really had kind of a breakdown on all cylinders. And that's something I'm proud of. Uh, but it's something I, uh, I had to do. And one of the problems was I was brutally hard on myself. Though I felt a lot of shame. I felt a lot of guilt. I mean, the reasons for that are always complex. But I really, uh, I don't know if I enjoyed beating myself up, but it, it is something I'd done all my life. And, you know, I wanted to relay that. In the book, I actually sometimes wonder if in the book, I, uh, not to be indulgent, it should have been, there should have been more about me in it. I, you know, you, re, re, you write a book and you always wonder, and it's true of everything, you know, should I have done this, should I have done that? Uh, you know, was, was, the, was the balance right? Because in many ways it really was uh, about me. The title sucked. That was a bad move. Uh, that was your call? Well, yes, it was, uh, it was kind of my call. And then I thought, well, it's not a very good title, but I have Houghton Mifflin and Eamon Dolan who's really one of the truly great, great editors. I thought if they didn't like it, they would say so. And I, you know what? Shit happens. What, what, what it did, though, is it's, it centered the book and t- linked the book so much to the Father's Day that once Father's Day was over, it just, it just disappeared and it didn't really describe the book. Uh, you know, titles are elusive. Friday, uh, you know, it's the other fucking thing about Friday Nights. It was like the best title ever invented. <laughs> it's a good and title. And that came... The, that came Literally hours before it, that was it. Really? Yeah. We, we were at lunch. That's surprising. And Jane I say, said, well, all right, we're going to come up with a title. And I was, th- was thinking Dreaming of Heroes. She, sounds that, she said, that sounds like shitty poetry. That's no good. And I, she said, give me something. Give me something. And I quoted one of the players talking about the magic of the Friday Night Lights. And she said, that's it. That's it. And, you know, and, and like, so it's like everything. The, the cover was perfect. <laughs> Fuck that book. <laughs> You know, it's like everything was perfect. But Father's Day was a big departure. It was a memoir in a sense, and it's something I wanted to do, and I wanted to try it. You know, I wanted to do something uh, different because I, you know, I'd done traditional long-form uh, narrative. I did a book with uh, Le- LeBron James that actually gets better with time, and I wanted to oh, do something you feel something better about that LeBron book now? Yeah, I mean, I've, I actually thought it was a good story. I mean, I think the problem with that book, which didn't, do that well was it was too early in his career he really wasn't liked he's liked now i mean there's always going to be controversy i mean it came out right after he went to miami right no it came out it came out before but he had never won a championship Uh, he was young i think he he didn't really take he didn't understand what it entailed um but you know the look the difficulty was is that you're it's his book you know he could do anything he wants although he changed very little and i don't think his there's a real controversial story to lebron LeBron's pretty simple. LeBron is very smart. He's very intuitive. He's very savvy. But his backstory is really not that complicated. It's, it's not. He was not a kid who looked for trouble. He didn't like to get in trouble. The one thing about LeBron was he hated being alone. And he hated being alone because he was left alone. And all of that was in the book. And it was an ensemble um, book. So I, you know, there's talk about bringing it out again. I suggest that the publisher... Yeah, were you surprised you went back? No, I wasn't. I wasn't surprised he went back for several reasons. I, I, I think he likes to shake things up. Um, he does love that area. He's been great for Akron, uh, and I guess by extension Cleveland. Although Akronites will tell you, well, you know, he really never lived in Cleveland. And I think he wanted the idea of sort of starting from scratch. I don't know how much LeBron liked that constant pressure of you should win every year. You should be winning every year. It's a lot of pressure, and. 
I don't think LeBron's the type of guy who's going to play for 20 years. I just don't. I could see LeBron playing five more years and saying, you know what? I want to do something different. I want to be like Magic Johnson. I want to own a baseball team. The guy has very big ambitions. And I, I well, came I was this- very critical of him at the beginning. I was in that bad period of Twitter and being a shithead to everyone and being a real bombastic schmuck, which I, I'm not anymore. And I, it was a, a, a bad persona. Uh, but I also realized the hatred of LeBron was insane was was insane people were so happy when he failed that first year uh with the heat and it was the whole you know i'm taking my talents to miami and that whole way he did that but you know he hasn't killed anybody uh he's really been a pretty good citizen and has become a very good spokesman for the league so. yeah and he won he won people back i mean it did feel to me like uh a big part of the of going back to cleveland is just trying to like write the one real wrong in yeah his life. I, th- I think that's it i think and i i think it's fun I mean, it's fun. You know, look, it's his team. You know, he's obviously dictating the right. trades. He's a, he's a magical player, although I don't think he shoots enough. And I think it's fun. And I think it is, yeah, I mean, you know, it's kind of, what are you going to criticize him for now? That he screwed Cleveland? Well, he's going back to Cleveland. You know, he left Miami. So the people will find something, but I think that's a good point. I don't know why I'm so interested in talking about LeBron, but you, you feel like he's not efficient enough? Like, that's his whole thing about not shooting, right? Is that I, he's I like, think he's almost too efficient. I think like he he's passes. He's the perfect game. Yes, I think he passes too much. I mean, I think sometimes just go to the hoop, man. You just wrote a piece about uh, the quarterback of the Eagles. Right, Nick Foles. Nick right. Foles. Right. That had a similar thesis, or at least you were, it felt like you were writing it from the same place, which is that you, you wanted him to be the man and want to be the man. Yeah, I mean, you know, look, you, you can all be the man you can be. And um, Nick has, Nick had a great last year. He came out of nowhere in his second year and threw 27 touchdowns and three interceptions. He didn't start the whole year. I maintain about Nick the one thing that's missing is there's absolutely no edge. There's no affect of any kind. And Arrogance comes in athletes in all cer- certain different ways. You know, you can be very quiet and have an edge. You can see a certain intensity uh, that is just there. And I don't think he has it. You know, he's kind of golly, uh, gee whiz. Uh, he's very religious, which is fine, but I almost think he proselytizes sometimes. And I don't know if there's a place for that type of religion in the game. You know, I th- almost think it should be kept private. He uh, turned you down for an interview, too. Yeah, he turned me down for an interview, and people say, well, you took it out on him, which I really, the piece is 90% positive. It's like everything in the world. You know, there was the ending, which I believed, and, you know, people just read four paragraphs, controversial, sensationally negative story about Nick Foles. Give me a break. I mean, it wasn't. It was about that he's kind, that he's decent, that he works his ass off, that he's always defied expectations. But, you know, uh, Tom McGrath, the editor of the Philadelphia Magazine, made a good point. He said, no, there's no nuance anymore. Because of the internet and because of this desperate desire to find something and to get it out there and get attention, people don't read things with nuance. I mean, it, I tried to make it nuanced. It was a whole last section about his reaction to seeing his best friend almost die in the field. And that, to me, also showed he has a certain maturity. I mean, that was, that was like irrelevant. I did say he was chicken shit, and that was a little, that was a little, <laughs> it was a little provocative. I will, I will ad, ad, admit to that. But he just lacks... And edge. Now, you know, he's not LeBron. LeBron is a, is, a, is a better gifted athlete. But, you know, look, I mean, LeBron did something with me. Tony Orusa did something with me. Albert Pujols did something with me. You look every day and you see people who cooperate with the media. I mean, Nick, you know, it's too late for you to say, I don't want to add any attention to myself. I mean, you're the franchise quarterback now. You know, the next whatever. 
And I was pissed off. I take professional pride. I was shocked because they asked me to do it because of the link of Friday Night Lights. He went to Westlake High in in, in Austin. Um, Pete Berg, when he made the movie Friday Night Lights, he used Westlake High for research. Uh, Westlake High, what ha- something had happened there when a kid was paralyzed on another team in the playoffs. Uh, that became the basis for the pilot of, of the movie. Nick once said, I'm like a character out of Friday Night Lights. Well, if you're a character out of Friday Night Lights, talk to the guy who wrote Friday Night Lights, and I'll decide whether or not you're a character. So um, I have to say about Nick, though, is when he was asked, you know, like his... Um, you know, training camp started like the first question he was asked about this. And I said, people get a life. And he was very articulate. He actually was quite good. So you know what? You didn't even get that thoughtfulness. He was very thoughtful. Yeah. And, and you know what? People say, well, you, you want to change your mind if you talk to him. That's absolutely not true. It has always been my experience that subjects, when they talk to you, even if they think it's going to be negative, the story always comes out more balanced and better. It does. You know, I had to go with what I had, and I had to go with what people told me. I mean, it wasn't, and and what I found. He is he is the son of a very very rich family, probably the richest family in the NFL, or certainly one of the richest. He's lived a very insulated life. In high school, he didn't have a single African American teammate. Westlake is one of the most insulated places in the country. I didn't I didn't I didn't make that stuff up. He doesn't do well under pressure. He's lost every big game. I didn't I didn't make that stuff up. Uh, there is a real reticence to him and a real shyness to him. And he was goofy in high school. I didn't make that stuff up. Do you think there's any chance that he didn't want to talk to you because you're you? You know, I don't know. I, I actually don't think so. I mean, I, I, I think, look, I think to his credit, he honestly feels there is a true contrition to him and it's been there forever. I don't want to draw, draw attention to myself. And, you know, could the Eagles have said to do it? Yeah, but the Eagles don't care about print they only care about twitter and facebook you know and my dealings with them were somewhat difficult Uh, but i I think he honestly felt it's not appropriate and i tried to argue with his agents with his parents with the team you know that we're it's a philadelphia publication you have an obligation to the media and it's not a negative story i probably would have liked them a lot i just want to hang with them for a day i mean it's not too much to ask is it Is, is is eight hours too much to ask well i guess i guess it was what you should have done is just email him like every six weeks for a year and a half. You say it's every six weeks. I remember it being like every other day. <laughs> and maybe he would have said, the only way I'm going to get this guy off my back is, is I'll let to this do guy this. come to my But, apartment. you know, I tried all the avenues and, the, you know, and yeah. the, the thing that I even gave him a book, Friday Night Lights, signed, and I would like that back. <laughs> and I gave one to his parents and I would like that back, uh, back as well. Can we talk a little bit more about Father's Day? Yeah, sure. I'm interested in what, your, in what Jerry's response was. Jerry read the book beforehand. So did my wife, Lisa. So did Caleb. You know, I felt they should. Zach couldn't. He wouldn't really understand it. He's never read it. And it wasn't so they could change things. It was for them to know what was going to happen. You know, Jerry loved the book. He felt guilt. Uh, It made him remember some things that were difficult about how different uh, Zach was and you know maybe feeling a, a greater obligation uh, to Zach but you know what they're they're twins they're brothers so there's always going to be that brother thing uh, uh, going on I think you know Jerry became very conscious you know there for the grace of God go I you know? mm-hmm. three minutes three minutes different that three minutes really can determine a lifetime that much you know I do know Jerry was out three minutes earlier and you know, made all the difference. I'm happy to report Zach is doing phenomenally well. 
And this apartment, in a sense, is, is really his. He lives here now five nights a week. He has thrived on independence. He does the laundry. He um, can cook in a microwave. Uh, he's neat. He's much neater than my other kids. And he's really, really doing well. I mean, he just, every, seems like every week, he's picking up more and more and more, and his vocabulary improves. He's, he is a remarkable kid, and he's still very funny, very quirky. You've mentioned it a couple of times, these three minutes. It's like these moments, these very, very brief moments where life can change right. forever uh, is, is a theme in a lot of your work. Yeah, I mean, I'm trying to... Uh, Booby. Well, that's, that's actually a really good point. It is a theme. Barbaro. Right. Oh, yeah, Barbaro. Well, actually, that's an excellent point. See, I love it when people make points that as a writer, you, you sort of take credit for it and you say, yeah, what's he talking about? It's sort of accent. But there is a reason for that. I mean, the first big story I really, narrative story I ever did was about a plane that fell from the sky. And that was written when I was at the St. Paul Pioneer Press and really got me now. And it was a runner-up for the Pulitzer and won the Livingston Award. And that was about 44 seconds. So, the, And there is a reason for all that because what I try to take do is take the smallest chunk of time possible and then report the hell out of it. And so 44 seconds. Barbaro is defined by that moment when he leaves the gate at the Preakness and his, and his ankle uh, is shattered. You know, the, uh, people said, when did you know you had a book, Friday Night Lights, when Booby got hurt? And that took a millisecond. And it was completely accidental. It wasn't even hit that hard. Um, those are the moments when you have a book. You know, Prayer for the City was much harder because, you know, it was a four years and how the hell do you make that into a you know compress that that's why people like doing so many season in the life books i feel responsible for this in incredible outpouring and i i think there's been enough of them but a, a season is great because particularly football season because it's compact so you're always looking for a compact um, narrative and sometimes you get them and sometimes father's day compact you know compact three week two weeks i guess two, two week trip two week trip it's gonna end so there is there is a there is a method um you know, to the madness when I'm looking for narrative and sometimes you get it, you know, sometimes uh, you don't. You know, writing is obviously difficult. Um, the really elusive part is narrative, is finding that narrative line that has enough drama to, you know, keep it going. Jane Isay said, I remember when, I, when the book was a mess, she said, do you ever read mysteries? You know, mysteries, why would I read mysteries? I'm much too erudite to read mysteries and you say well you, maybe you should read them because whatever you think of the writing they're really good at that they make you turn the page and there's nothing wrong with turning the page because if people don't turn the page they're not going to finish the book and they may not pick it up i'm sure you've seen this new rating that's been done i think by a professor at wisconsin or wherever uh where you know you can tell by the number of underlying passages in kindle how far people have gone in the book hillary yeah. clinton two percent Piketty, 2.4%. Michael Lewis, 21%. It's pretty low. People get turned off pretty quickly. And so you got to hook them. You got to hook them. I, uh, I read Father's Day on a Kindle. All of the highlighted passages, like all the ones that pop up, are all about you. Are they in the like first 20 pages or are they at the end? It yeah, falls off. Yeah, yeah, it falls off. But yeah, yeah. They, it's interesting. I mean, it's the, interesting. The, the, the thing that people gravitate towards is, is you and you wrestling with... Uh, wrestling with these demons about yourself as a father. That's what, that's what they, you know, there's a couple of moments where you sort of take a step back and say, what does this mean about me? Right. And there are a lot of moments. And I, you know, look, that was the intent of the book. I never wrote the book to make myself a hero. I was Did it make you feel myself. better though? 
it didn't necessarily make me feel better. It made me feel honest. Was there something cathartic in, in saying what a shithead you are? And I wasn't really that awful, but no. I mean, but I felt, look, if you're going to, what's the point of running this book? This was one of the first book written on the subject, but, you know, it was one of the few books that was brutally honest. You are disappointed. You do have aspirations. You, it does hurt when, you know, my son's going to Yale and my daughter's going to Harvard or, or Bucknell or wherever, and you have a son who's, never going to college. He's always going to be working, um, you know, for a law firm stocking supplies and, and at a grocery store. But I mean, I've gotten over that. Parents are selfish. Parents want their kids to do well because it makes them feel good. I mean, any parent who says that is a, is a, is a liar. Um, but, you know, I also bled for Zach and then the juxtaposition of having a twin who was really making his way in the world. And, you know, as good as Zach is doing, they're, they're really you know, limitations. I mean, this is a small thing. He was cooking in the microwave, and this was my fault. He used the wrong plate. There was a spark. Could have been a fire. Now I was here, and he told me, well, what happens if I'm not here? What happens if there's a fire? You know, what do you do? Well, you call 911. Well, you know, you got to, you know, you got to put it out. And there are always those moments. But I also feel that Zach needs independence, and I realize that also within the book he thrives on it and he can handle it he's really independent now and it really helps his life that's great the book is very honest there's a, a lot that you've written that is very honest uh do you do you ever regret being so honest publicly no i mean you know we're now we're going to probably get to the gq story to maybe or maybe not but i mean that there was a period in which i felt and i feel too much I was writing about myself, and, and Father's Day was the beginning of that. And then I wrote a GQ story that was uh, very sexually explicit about my own experimentation and by my obsession with clothes, clothing, mostly leather. Uh, it was a very honest piece. It was very, very flawed. And it was almost, I don't regret it. I mean, I actually think some people sort of got a lot out of it. The, the obsession, the honesty, you know, uh, clothing addictions do exist and, you know, symbolic of something more. And there was a lot of other stuff going on that I didn't write about, you know, dabbling with drugs and some other stuff that was personally dangerous to me. Um, but it was really, I think, a cry for help in many ways because the, the day it came out, I went into, I did go into rehab. Literally the day it came out. Yeah. And I, I knew it would be controversial, and I didn't really... I never read the reaction, which is... Really? No. Never, I, there's no point. I mean, I heard about it. I heard a lot of it was negative. I mean, it's like... I, I just heard a lot of it was negative. You know, the Today Show, Matt Lauer became fascinated by it, and when I got out, he, they called several times, wanted me to do something, and I just didn't, didn't you know, didn't want to do it. But, I, you know, I don't regret it. I mean, I think it's part of your growth as a writer and really your growth really your growth is a human being would I have gone to the rehab without writing it you know I don't I don't know but I but I also realized th there was a real self-destructiveness to that story I mean I knew that because I sort of knew in, in my head that it, my kids would find it really 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 disturbing and I did not show it to them and I think I was at the stage in my life where almost consciously one of the destroyed my link to everything, including my kids and my wife. You know, it was really hard for her. She's getting phone calls from reporters. You know, what are you talking to me for? My youngest son, Caleb, was really devastated. And it's taken work to kind of 
get him back. He was really embarrassed. Did so, they have any idea it was coming? No, I don't think so. I don't think I let them know. No, I mean, Caleb, uh, Caleb said that he was a Kenyan and people went up to him and said, what's with your dad? It's like he's gone nuts or what the hell is this? And he said, what are you talking about? And he said, well, this story in GQ. So I think that, you know, I often show things to him. He's very smart. He's a good writer. And I didn't. And I think that was really the, the cry for help was to be that hard on yourself in a sense and that self-destructive than you need some some help professionally and you need it in, intensively so it's hard to do when you think about it you're kind of amazed that you did it at least for me the glow wears off but there really have been some enduring lessons including the, that my wife and I moved to a very very remote place because there's just not a lot of noise there's not a lot of hearing about whether what other writers are doing and there is I am not religious, but there's a very, very much a spiritual connection with nature. It's just absolutely uh, beautiful. What do you feel like the flaws in the piece were? I, you know, I have I haven't read it over. I mean, I I, I think it was uh, there was there was too much about this uh, the delight of clothing. I think the ending was kind of fucked up because it was sort of about you know how great Gucci was, and you know I didn't want to screw them. They I'd taken this trip, and I didn't think it was I didn't want to bash them, but I, I I think that I should have been more thoughtful as to what I put in, and also how I wrote about it. And I, mean, I probably I cre- I created the wrong impression. Everyone thought that this guy has gone into rehab and is fucked up because he, of a clothing addiction, and that's bullshit. Shopping addictions are are bullshit. First of all, they're not bullshit because they're symbolic of something else. But I think you got at that in that piece that there was. I tried to, but a lot of people, you know, either made fun of it or misinterpreted it. But you know, it's the net; they're going to make fun of anything you do. I was thinking about it today because uh, I knew I couldn't get rid of you. I actually hope we were hoping you were the cable guy, but you're not, because uh, the cable guy came and went. But the ending was was bad. I mean, you know, it was sort of parading the fact that you're wearing all this very, very expensive clothing, and I love clothing. I still love clothing, and I just sort of didn't like thinking about it but I, I you know there's there's no stock in rereading it there was absolutely no stock in seeing what the reaction was whether it was good or or, or bad because it makes no difference you know do I google my name once a month I, I used to do it three or four times um, a day there's no stock in doing that and you know when I read stuff about myself I don't get upset one way or another it's just all part of the machine I mean in the years running up to that piece you know, you were living quite publicly on the internet. Yeah, and I, I, I just, I went through a phase, and I'm not sure what the phase was. And part of the phase was that in this world now, you have to put on a certain hat to get noticed. And for me, it, it sort of started with Twitter, where I adopted this persona of being extremely profane and extremely outspoken. Using the phrase uh, douche juice a lot. You know, douche juice and uh, mean and cruel. Lost a lot of friends. You know, LeBron was never a friend, but he was someone I knew, and that went away. Tony La Russa, forget it. We were very good friends. You know, I criticized him. I trashed him. I trashed a lot of people, um, and it got me 35,000 followers, and I'm off Twitter now. I mean, I, I got rid of it, so. Uh, you miss it? No, no, because, uh, you know, and I was sort of the speed Twitterite, and I would do 65 tweets in, in an hour and get on these jags. No, because I just, I think it was getting me away from, serious writing i think it was it was like me 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 ism i was coming the persona but uh 
it got me a radio gig that you know didn't work out for for a lot of reasons it got me the possibility of a uh, sports show on on the web that I gave up when I went into rehab a serious sports show on the web uh, underwritten by Lexus got me on all these shows you know I was doing shows left and right and I've given most of it up I, I didn't like who I was my wife hated it and you know when you sort of get into the opinion game and particularly when you're doing radio you, all you do is spout opinions right. part of it is because you're testing your opinions out but that's your persona and a lot of people love twitter they thought it was really funny but you know i just didn't didn't want to do it anymore i don't think it was good i don't think it was good for me and i don't think it made me fe- it didn't make me feel any better about myself was the appeal of it initially just getting that like dopamine hit do you yeah. think the appeal was dopamine and then the appeal was it got attention and I, I did get tired of getting, you know, I'd read, I don't know, I liked 70 followers and, and any, anyone who would write about me would trash me for something. Uh, you're fat, you're short, you stink, you smell. And I got really, and I started to fight back and I can be very acerbic and very, very cynical and pretty biting. And so I started to fight back and then people wrote about it and then I got more followers. You know, Deadspin wrote about it. And I have this very odd, funny, actually good relationship. They wrote about it. And then David Carr wrote about it. And then the LA Times wrote about it. It gets you more and more followers. And then part of it is you want more, you know, you get addicted to followers. You get addicted to getting on a jag. I would do like 65 tweets in an hour. But it also was wasting a lot of time. You know, it also was a great excuse not to write, not to work the fuck around. You know, I'll just do it for an hour. And then it's, you know, then you see so you tweet for an hour. And then you, then you read all the reaction to your tweets for another hour. And then you read your tweets again, and so you've wasted three hours of the day. And I, as I say, it was a, it was a, you know, I unfortunately I think that's the persona that works today. I think that works. I think that's that's what our society wants. That's what the net encourages: is snarlyism, eccentricity, distinguishing yourself. And look, you know, a lot of writers have uh, Twitter accounts. And most have about 40 people on them. I mean, I know there are others. There's some who have a lot of and really work it. Jennifer Weiner has a lot. Uh, but I realize, you know, if, if I think I'm going to get followers because of the books that I wrote, that ain't going to happen. You have to create a distinct persona. So I sort of became the profane curmudgeon, basically, really curmudgeonly. People, people compare me to Lewis Black, which is nice because Lewis Black can be funny. But I just wasn't, in a sense, in rehab, it just was not comfortable with it. And I quit it before... I just didn't want to do it anymore. I just didn't. And, and, you know, when you're doing something where you're losing friends and to a certain degree embarrassing yourself or just putting yourself out there nakedly, I don't, you know, people have heard enough about me, I think, until I find some great idea that involves me, and then, of course, I'll do it. Well, it's interesting to say that the problem is putting yourself out there nakedly because most of what you were just saying was that it wasn't quite you. It didn't really feel like you. Well, it was, it was, it's, it's an interesting observation. It was in a phase of my life where I don't really give a shit. And it was a phase of my life where um, I'm going to be really, really outspoken. So when I wrote about LeBron, you know, saying what was he thinking when he did that, that um, press conference announcing he was going to Miami, I mean, I thought it was despicable at the time, but then I would take it to the nth degree. Um, you know, I would criticize people and it would be in good faith. Uh, but, uh, you know, bit by bit, I realized it wasn't very nuanced and it was uh, mean and not very well thought out. It really had no thought to it at all. And then when I sort of went into radio, 
for a while. I mean, that's all you do. You know, you're you'll get you're trying to get attention any way you can. And the more out there you are, the the more ridiculous things you say, the more attention you want. Nuance is not a big part of our society anymore. It's just not. You know, you can write, as I say, you can write a piece that's really nuanced and you're, you're trying to, to suggest different things and get across different moods. You know, you, if you have one paragraph in there that's the re- remotely negative or controversial, that's what people are going to concentrate on. So it's, that's, that's the world uh, today, and Twitter is great for that, and I was really good at it. I was really, go- I was really good at 140 characters and giving really zinging people. I have to say that I was among the better Twitterites. You were really good at Twittering. You were a great Twitterer. <laughs> right. You were you were good at getting attention and being bombastic. Right. But you would really thoughtfully apologize. Well, I you know I, I would thoughtfully apologize, and I actually think I am uh, honest. So I would thoughtfully apologize because I tend to do things, and then probably like a lot of people, then I, I dwell on it. I think about it. I think where I've, uh, you know, gone over the over the top. I mean, in the leech thing. The problem was I didn't really know a lot about the web. I knew very little about, I didn't really do a lot of research. I knew very little about these these blogs. Um, the worst thing I did was, and this is, any lawyer will tell you this, um, I asked a question I didn't know the answer to. <laughs> Leach answered it. Uh, he knew who W.C. Hines was, and then I said, oh, shit, now I'm really in trouble. I really have to, have to go on the offensive. Um, and the reaction to that was there was a, overwhelmingly negative reaction. And, you know, when people write and say, you know, I loved your writing, I'm going to burn your book, you know, whether it's one people or 10, and there were a fair amount. And that that made me realize I had gone uh, uh, over the top. Look, part of it is, is you know, this is, this is an age in which you say something, and then, you know, you try to apologize and maybe to squirm your way out of it. And maybe, you know, subconsciously, uh, that was part of it. The problem with, problem with Twitter was, you can only do that. You you have to be angry. You have to be angry all the time. You really have to get going into that zone of anger, and that's really not healthy. I mean, the observation was made when I was in rehab was you know all you really care about is noise, positive noise, negative noise. That's all you really care about, and that's going to be very debilitating at a certain point because you're always going to be agitated. Um, in your life, you know, and then uh, that's why we moved. I mean, you can't find a place more different from Philadelphia. I grew up in Manhattan on the Upper West Side. You're not going to f- find a place any more different than Long Beach, uh, Washington. I mean, Long Beach, it's gorgeous. It's beautiful. They're, they're good people. It's the kind of place where uh, we may get Gone with the Wind as a first-run movie. And pretty much there's a theater a complex 40 minutes away and pretty much uh, on every screen is teenage ninja mutant turtles. That's the kind of place uh, that it is. You can't get the New York Times delivered the same day. Does anyone there know who you are? No, very few. You know, I mean, they may know. It's never mentioned. Most people uh, don't know. It's never brought up. And, you know, I mean, friends know, but the, the public at large doesn't doesn't know. Uh, which is good, and it's quiet. And I needed, I really felt I needed that quiet. Now, people say, well, you know, anger was your edge and agitation was your edge, and that's going to hurt your writing. I don't know. It may be that in order to live a happier life, you become a shittier writer. I don't know. And I actually think about that. I mean, I always was angry. I always had an agitation. And have I lost the, that that edge as a writer, whatever edge someone someone has to kind of keep you going? But I couldn't. 
live in that in that fashion. I just couldn't, and you know, I think it would have destroyed my marriage, and it was just destroying uh, me. And you know, I realized that I'm actually a pretty thoughtful person. I mean, you know, I write with passion. I always wanted to write with passion, but you know, you, to do some of the stuff that I've done requires a lot of thought, and I do think a lot. I mean, I think a lot. It may not sound that way when it comes out, but I, I mean, I really dwell over, you know, what I write. I mean, the ending to the Nick Foles piece where, you know, calling him chicken shit was, as I said, was probably, but I thought about that. I thought about that. Is it gratuitous? Is it a cheap shot? Well, it's not. He has no edge. And will that matter? Will it not matter? I don't know, but I, I think that's the flaw that he just, whatever it is, he's missing it. And, you know, that was something that I felt was, was borne out by the story. So, I mean, I, I do, th there is a method to the madness, but when you're tweeting an hour, you know, you don't even know what the fuck you're saying after a while. You're just sort of blabbing out and douche juice and fuck this and fuck that and fuck this and fuck that. And, you know, it just, just wasn't, you know, at the, it, it was just too provocative. It was too mean. You're losing friends. And I just don't want to do How that. How are you anymore. doing now? So maybe they'll retire my number. My Twitter <laughs> no one, number. no one else can claim Buzz Bissinger. Yeah. Well, I don't know. It's you know, thing with Twitter is it's very hard to get off of it. So I have no. I think I'm off of it. They make it very, very hard. That's the part they don't, they don't tell you. But I'm off. You know, I don't. I never did Facebook that much. But I'm. I don't. I don't do any of that stuff anymore. It wasn't. Wasn't helping. Um, you know, I'm good. I mean, I'm. I'm much more centered. Uh, my wife and I love being in Washington State. Uh, and we spend a lot of time together, which we love. We work in the same place. And life is good. Uh, you know, I, I have moments of career anxiousness just because it's harder now. I mean, it's, it's not easy out there. Uh, the money is less. The opportunities are, you know, more difficult. I have a lot of work, but they're not paying as much. And, you know, you, you, you worry about security. I mean, I don't have any security. You know, I, I don't. I've had health benefits for a long time because of uh, telepay, teleplays, and screenplays. But that every business is changing. Every creative business is changing. You know, I'm. I'm. Everyone's going through it. You you have legitimate financial concerns. Like for Friday Night Life didn't. Yeah, I do. I do because of Zach. Zach, that's what life is. I mean, Zach. To ensure his future when I'm gone and his mom is gone, I mean that costs a certain amount of money. You always have legitimate concerns when you see your income, uh, you know, appreciably lower uh, than it, than it was. You worry about look. Writing's not as fresh as it used to be. It just isn't. I remember David Halberstam saying, "The first one you do for love, the rest you do for money," <laughs> and he did that really well. And he had a real method to it. You know, and he pretty much came out with a book once every two years: sports book, general book, sports book, general book. I'm not very uh, prolific. I tend to procrastinate a lot. But, it, you know, it, does it have that dazzle, that excitement? No. I mean, I write pieces that I like. I wrote a piece about Duncan, Oklahoma, where that Australian baseball player was killed that I, that I liked a lot. Um, you know, I did another piece for Vanity Fair that should run soon on the, the, the theft of this $5 million violin in Milwaukee. It's like a Cone Brothers movie, frankly, and it's serendipitous absurdity but you do sit there and you say man it's hard to come up with an original sentence and frankly you do write something you say that sounds familiar because you wrote it before <laughs> and thinking in your head to, to to come up with a with a with a preposition or to describe something 
gets harder. I mean, it, you know, just, just, just does. And I know writers like, obviously I'm not Philip Roth or close to him, but you know, he's quit for that reason. It just gets harder. I try to write with vividness and I try to write in a cinematic fashion. And writing is a, is a solitary act. I miss collaboration. I never really had collaboration in my life. I'm working on a screenplay now uh, for Sony TriStar based on a, a terrific autobiography by R.A. Dickey, the major league pitcher who won the Cy Young throwing a knuckleball at the age of 38. But I still you know, love a good story. And you know, I just hope that you know, a book idea really hits and really resonates that uses... Uh, all my cylinders, but it's daunting to think, am I going to move to an Odessa, Texas when I'm 60 years right. old? Am I going to spend five and a half years, you know, writing a prayer for the city? No, that, that's a big chunk of time. You know, people have spent 15 years on great books that no one ever reads. And I know that, you know, publishing may be in the shitter, but you know what? There are a lot of books that are published. I went to a bookstore yesterday. Jesus Christ, so many fucking books. <laughs> and, you know, it's like, it's daunting. You know, how are you going to get any space anywhere? You know, shelves and shelves and shelves and shelves of books of all. And a lot of them are ridiculous. I mean, those strange subjects that no one would read. And, you know, where am I going to get, where is there going to be a space, uh, you know, a, a space for me? So I guess I should write Saturday Night Lights and Sunday Night Lights and whatever <laughs> the hell go. it should be. Season with a uh, yes, yes. high school lacrosse team. <laughs> oh, that's been done. Don't worry. Maybe there's a book in rehab. I thought about that a little bit. I, I'm not, I'm just not prepared or ready to do it. I don't think it's a good time to do it, I think. You know, there was a lot of damage that was done. It's about repairing uh, relationships. It's proving to my wife that, you know, we can live. I, I did a lot of bad things. I mean, I did beyond what I wrote about. I mean, you know, there was infidelity. Uh, there was playing around with drugs. There was uh, suicide ideation. I mean, there was a lot going on. She was very humiliated. We did split up. Uh, she went through a lot, and she really stood by me which has been great because she's magnificent you know she's great i'm very not dependent on her was rehab your call or yes, hers rehab was my call i i had gone to a very good therapist here in um philadelphia a woman named penny stark and i felt that as good as she was once a week wasn't enough and just too much was unraveling and she felt the same way and i really had to get concentrated it's not fun i mean rehab is not fun a lot and i i think it's much harder uh, my addictions were, in a sense, sexual. My addictions were stemming from shame and humiliation and embarrassment that I'd felt all my life. There was a lot going on. If it's alcohol or drugs, as good as rehab is, I think it, those are really, really hard habits to kick, and there's a lot of feeling now that there should be another way uh, to do it. The thing about rehab is it's, it's great when you're there, in a sense, and as they pointed out, you know what's great about your rehab for you guys? You're all narcissists, so you get a ton of attention. You know, you're getting attention all the time. You're getting all this therapy, and you can say whatever you want. You know, much harder when you're outside. You're not going to get as much attention, so they're very honest about it. But I got a lot out of it. I felt for me the therapy was was both good and valuable. And, and you know, I still think about the, the things that resonate, you know, in trying to get, you know, what happens you get into a hole and, and trying to get, trying to get out of the hole and, and appreciate, you know, the wonders of life. You feel like you're getting there? Yeah, I, th I, do, I do really well in the Northwest because it's quiet. When I, when I come back to Philly, I, I feel a greater sense of agitation. I've always had this feeling that people sort of, you know, and it's not, you know, what have you, what have you done for me lately? What are you working on? You know, I hate that question. What are you working on? 
and they ask it in good faith because they're curious and I've written things I do the interesting things but then I get all intense well I'm not really agitated well I'm not really working on anything why are you asking do you think I'm a loser you know do you just know me for Friday Night Lights I mean the fucking 25th anniversary has come out I wrote that book when I was 34 can we move on I mean it's all this bullshit that comes to the fore but it, it you know clogs uh in your head I mean I'm, I'm learning how to ride a motorcycle which I've always wanted to do now you talk about idealized suicide suicide ideation but Lisa my wife rides one uh, and I've gotten out there and it's 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 fun and, it, and it's uh, it's different my relationship with nature has, has become somewhat profound because where we live is absolutely uh, uh, magnificent and I, I am happier I mean I am definitely happier and more centered I was never really centered most most writers are not centered most writers are the opposite of centered you know you get i don't think there can be anything more boring than getting a group of journalists together <laughs> for people who, are, who who spend their lives writing about others maybe that's when they get together all they do is talk about themselves of course most people in life only talk about themselves and i actually do like to listen but i've sort of come to the conclusion in life that sometimes it's just better to be with your dog and your wife because all you do is it, you know, conversation has become an excuse to talk about yourself and not engage. <laughs> I made you silent. <laughs> that's, a, it's a, that's a tough line to follow. Well, I, I do think about that. And I think it's just, you know, I think we're all narcissistic at heart. And I think listening, listening is, is, listening is hard. Listening is a lost art. You good at it? Yeah, I actually am good at it. And I actually enjoy it. I mean, I, I really, you know, I ask questions because I'm a journalist and I learned things. I mean, I learned things, you know, little thing here, a little thing there. And I, I, I enjoy the process that other people use. And, and I, I do enjoy it. And I also think it makes for better, uh, you know, better conversation. I don't like talking. I, never, I don't like ever talking about what I'm working on. I just, I just, I just don't. I, don't. I just don't. Have you gotten better at listening or worse at listening? My wife, Lisa, said that I was a great listener when she first met me, and then I'd become a terrible listener. And I think I have become a better listener, not because it's like a nice thing to do. It's, it's fun to listen. You know, that's how you learn about things. I, I, I will say the other thing about people is the amount of mis, misinformation that people give out is appalling. However, I realize that, you know, you hear something and you don't remember it verbatim. But, you know, still, because I like to actually have facts when I speak, and, you know, because I'm getting Alzheimer's, I don't remember a lot of things. But it's, it's amazing what people talk about with any, any basis in fact whatsoever. Is there something, like, in particular you're thinking of? No, I mean, you, you know, it's, it, it's like, I forget, it came up in the context of someone who, someone was talking about somebody, something in sports, and he was having a conversation, and... The person said, well, you know, every Division One football team makes money. And he was completely adamant about that. Well, that's ab absolutely not true. I think at most 40% make money. And I think there are five Division One programs that actually make money for their athletic department. But, you know, it's where I sort of go back to a poll that was done that a third of Americans think there actually were weapons of mass destruction. So, I mean, you know, we, we do live in an age of misinformation. I mean, look, look at what's reported and how it's reported, you know. Do we really know what happened in the St. Louis shooting? Something, something appalling happened. Leaving that kid out for four hours was, is appalling. But do we know the circumstances of, of how he were shot? We can surmise, but it used to be you really tried. You really tried to, to learn, to know. I mean, you know, in the Zimmerman case, CNN. CNN has learned 
that Zimmerman used the word nigger. Well, then they, then they say that, and then they say, well, maybe we should have an audio expert listen. And then the audio expert says, there's no way you can tell what he said. Well, why didn't you do that before? And CNN has learned. CNN, I mean, their coverage of that Malaysian plane that disappeared was, was farcically funny. CNN has learned that the plane may be somewhere in the hemisphere. CNN has learned that it may be in the Indian Ocean, the Atlantic Ocean, or the Pacific. Well, fuck what CNN has learned, because they haven't learned anything. See, but now you got me all agitated. Yeah, like, uh, shouldn't, shouldn't you be, uh, like, tuning that out? No. Um, well, you know, you, yeah, I, should I? Look, it, honestly, you, you, you have to find a balance. You know, you, look, you get out of rehab and you want to see Kumbaya, you want to sing Kumbaya all How the time. How long were you there for? Uh, two months, 60 days. You want to see, and then my wife and I did an intensive couples counseling. You do four days straight, just one-on-one with one therapist, which I really do recommend. That was incredibly helpful for both of us. Um, but you get out and there's the rehab glow. You're going to do meditation for an hour and then you're going to do yoga for two hours and you're going to, you know, sit in a circle and look at the sun coming down and that lasts for, you know, a couple months. But, you you know, I, I, I don't want to lose who I am, but I don't want to get just completely worked up uh, all the time. I mean, the, the, how do you find that balance? It's a good question. And, you, and finding it, frankly, is sometimes elusive. I will, I will say this, living, writing always produced a lot of anxiety for me. For me. I, I try not just to do it, to sort of shed that, that, that fear. And I've had a very productive ride. I mean, you know, Vanity Fair piece, two Vanity Fair pieces, a piece for Philly Mag, you know, pitching the screenplay successfully, just by going into it and saying, you know what, have fun. Do the, you, you, as long as you're doing the best, you know, when I did the story in, about Duncan, Oklahoma, on the tragic killing of this baseball player, you know, I didn't know what I was going to get. That's a difficult situation to parachute into. And opposed, you know, I just said, oh, just do what you can. If you do the best you can and it doesn't work, it doesn't work. As opposed to saying, I must have done something wrong. I must have fucked this up. I, why didn't that person talk to me? I should have approached it differently or, 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 or I, I, I fucked it up. I fucked it up. I fucked it up. I fucked it up. I really try not to do that. What was the fear? That I, that I wouldn't get anything. That I, I, there just was no angle um, of approach. That how do I get in? Obviously, the town doesn't really want to talk about. You know, I'm not going to get to the kids. How am I going to come up with anything that's 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 fresh or new? But you know, doors open. I have to be honest. A lot of doors open because of Friday lights. So you get over that fear and you just you know you just a little bit here, a little bit there, a little bit here, a little bit there, and then you use your sort of repertorial instincts and something. Then it, then then it's fun. Then it's fun. You know, when you see the crack and the crack becomes a fissure and the fissure becomes a canyon, then it's really fun. You know, wow. All right. Did that, did that moment not used to be fun? Getting to that moment, it was always fun, but getting to that moment was sort of terrifying. You know, a lot of, a lot of sort of uh, curled up in the fetal position. Before I went to rehab, I would nap two to three hours a day just to get away from life. And I don't, I don't nap anymore. Um, you know, I don't. I just, just, and it was, I just, I didn't really care about sleeping as much as just wanting to. I was so scared, so much fear, so much anxiety about everything. This is so much sort of denigration of myself that it was the only, only relief, um, you know, uh, I could get. You know, Lisa really uh, keeps me going. And uh, we have a great time together. A lot of laughs and, and wonderful intimacy and a great, great uh, yellow lab named Maddie 
who you know dogs are spiritual. I don't know if you have one, but they're I do. they're amazing. She's made uh, many appearances on this podcast. Really, your yeah. dog? How yeah, cool. she sits in the studio every How time. How cool is that? What, what kind of dog? She's like a lab pit mix. Oh, they're so great. We have a, she's getting old, and I worry about her. But you know where we are, and it didn't it didn't cost a lot. Uh, we sold our house in Philadelphia, which. I want to get rid of. I didn't didn't like the economic pressure of it. We bought this house. We have no mortgage. It has a, a pristine view of what the Walpa Bay, which is a great repository for some of the best oysters in the country. There's no one around us. It's the cleanest natural estuary in the United States. You see the Walpa Hills across the bay. Every sunset and sunrise is 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 magical. You know the the, the glint of the water, the tide. You know, coming back for coming here is great because I see the kids and I see friends, but I, I I do feel tranquility there and peace of mind there, and not anxiousness and not career fear. And you know, why am I not doing a book? Why can't I come up with an idea? What the fuck is wrong with me? And you know, why is Vanity Fair holding this story? And where's the next assignment going to come from? And the screenplay's all fucked up, and it's actually fucked up uh, because I'm procrastinating like crazy. But it it lessens uh, out there. I do enjoy. Sounds healthy. It is healthy. I mean, I'm happy for you. Yeah. No, it really is healthy. Do I like action? Yeah. I mean, do I like bright lights? Yeah. Do I like expensive, beautiful clothing? Yeah. Uh, You know, I was lucky enough to do a really ridiculously fun story for Departures Magazine, the American Express, on you know risque um, nightlife in Miami. You know, that was was fun. When was that? That was a couple weeks ago. It hasn't run yet. It was just fun. You know, you got all these clubs, and, you know, they, they want attention and publicity, so they give you VIP treatment, and it was fun, you know, so I get enough bright lights. But it is, it is, uh, it is healthy. That's why I would never, ever live in New York as a writer. Would never. You never really did, right? No, I, and I don't, I, I, I talked about um, moving to New York because I was from there. It's a great city, but I would get eaten up. I just would get eaten up by who's doing this, who's doing that, and it just would kill me. I mean, I, I just would not be able to take that. I, and I just want, I remember when I worked in Hollywood for a year for NYPD Blue and, you know, we, we would get free copies of Variety. Well, the only reason Variety existed was to depress screenwriters, basically. <laughs> deal cut for 1.8 million. Deal cut here. Deal cut here. You know, green light given. And you would read it and I would read it. I would read it after lunch and I would go lie on the couch for about two and a half hours. And that's not apocryphal. And then I, I just, and I, you know, it was that stage of my life where I had to read it, wanted to know what's going on. I don't really know anything. You know, I used to be well-versed in journalism. I'm sort of last to know. Reading back through your stuff, there's kind of two strains of writing, a third if you'd want to take in the Twitter stuff into account. But there's kind of like, there's this very personal, very confessional kind of writing that you do. And then, and then there's this journalism that's not, I wouldn't say it's uh, straight ahead, but you're not in the story. You're often not in the story. I, I wonder what the, for you what the bridge between those two things is i don't know if there is a bridge although they are very very distinct one's actually kind of very traditional almost um old-fashioned you know obviously i have a voice when i write but i purposely try to stay out of it and i guess maybe i felt at some point that we were Either I was tired or tired of straight narrative or wanted to write something that was more personally revealing. And it may have been that I don't feel people feel really do write honestly about themselves. I think they do want to be uh, the hero 
um, of their own story. Were people turned off in Father's Day because I was so honest? Yeah, some people were. Some people were appalled, you know, and that's that's fine. I mean, people do have a right to their um, opinion. I, I think in narrative long form, I'm moving back towards the more old-fashioned, traditional, straight-on narrative where I'm not in it because I do believe uh, that that's what's needed now. Reporting as a you know reporting maybe even a less voice although I still write with a lot of voice but more traditional, try good solid uh, reporting even if I did call Nick Foles chicken shit. <laughs> I mean, you are writing about things that you're passionate about. I try, I try. Yeah, I, I, that's true. I mean, Duncan, Oklahoma, not to keep harping on it. That was something I suggested at Vanity Fair. I, I, knew, I like small towns. I'm interested in, in how small towns tick. It was an incredibly tragic story. And the idea that some kid uh, uh, would be a 20-year-old kid with his life ahead of them is walking down the street and gets blown away by three kids in a passing car was disturbing and somewhat incomprehensible. And to me, it said something is ticking um, in that town. I wrote about Nick Foles for Philly Mag because... I was interested in them. You know, we had a common denominator. Look, if you, some things you, you do do for the money. Some things you just do. Uh, but, you know, it's hard enough to write about something if you don't really give a shit about it. But if you're passionate, then maybe, maybe you, you have a shot. That's, I've always felt that. What, what appeals to you about frauds, about stories about frauds? There's a bunch of those. Yeah, there is, there, is a, there is a bunch of those. And Glass, I, I, the doctor. I, I, look, why did, why did I get in... in um, into journalism. I got into journalism because I love newspapers. Newspapers were thriving at the time. Uh, my first professional job was in 1976. It was the height of Watergate. You know, I learned about long form then. You know, my first job was running 100-inch stories. They may not have been very good, but I mean, 100-inch story, uh, your first job as a rookie reporter, that's unheard of. But I got in because of the public's right to know. You know, that to me was really, really important and i forget the name that was it the ed asner show where he played the the editor i mean you know rossi people used to call me rossi and that was an image that i liked you know to be hard-hitting to be incisive to report things out and i do have a very heightened sense of right and wrong so stephen glass infuriated me this uh doctor who you know faked all these um, um nasal sinus surgeries in infuri- infuriated me because what they did was so absolutely egregious. And I think when someone does something egregious like that, they should be uh, exposed. You wrote a, uh epilogue to Friday Night Lights right. in 2012. You mean the, the e-book? Yeah, after, yeah, Friday, after Night Friday Night Lights. Right. It was really about booby, right? But it felt to me like reading it, it was like you were trying to make something right. Like it, you, yes. you, I think you... Still turned out terribly wrong as it turned out. How how so? Well, after Friday Night Lights was was an ebook that was written then for for a byliner, and it was about my relationship with Booby Miles. It's a very complex relationship, um, and I did feel somewhat responsible. I actually feel, and I know reporters and writers will probably be horrified at this. I feel that the subjects of stories should get paid, actually. But I also I felt in the case of Booby to see what he went through, to see his life pass in front of his eyes, to get hurt before your senior year when you thought you were going to be a showcase for the nation and play college football and pro football, to be called a dumb old nigger, to have no education. That really 
uh, got to me. And so I felt some obligation to help him out financially. After Friday Lights was about my relationship, my complex relationship, his difficulty in really sort of living and in, in having any stability and to what degree was he defined by that single moment of ruining his knee in a meaningless uh, preseason game. Uh, the problem was, and we split the profits. You know, he never read what I wrote. Split the profits. I felt that was fair. And it was a way of almost putting money in his hands without just simply giving it to him. How'd the book do? Uh, the book did well. I mean, for an ebook, it sold about 110,000 copies. The problem was about six months later, he violated his probation and went to prison. And I have not talked to him since then because I just felt he was beyond help or beyond my help. And I, I, I don't know if the money was doing any good. I don't know where it went. He's an adult. I'm not going to tell him where to, uh, where it should go. But uh, his lawyer called me and wanted me to fly down and be a character witness. And I just felt at that point I can't, you know, Booby, I've tried. I've tried for years, and I just can't help anymore. And it was tragic. You think about him? Yeah, I think about him. But I also think, you know, you had someone here, you know, and people say, well, you're just being self-aggrandizing as to how great and how charitable you are, and that's not the case. I mean, I really did love him and care about him. But, you know, he had a good chunk of money that could have bought a house where he was living in Kermit that could have helped his kids. I mean, you know, all he had to do was go to the probation officer and stay off drugs, and he didn't. And I began to wonder if I was just aiding and abetting his bad habits and making him think that every, whenever ever, anything got in a pinch, he could call and depend on me, and that can't happen anymore. It was a significant amount of money, and I care about him, but I just don't, I don't know if he can ever get it uh, together and he's very personable he's funny he's got a good sense of humor but I don't think he really likes the work I wonder if some way if he is stuck in time and still thinks of himself as a star and what was weird and what I felt really badly about it was he was kind of a star when the movie came out you know and people would recognize him but he didn't get anything out of that right. he didn't get a thing out of that the movie didn't they gave him virtually nothing I mean I supplemented it which doesn't make me good but that was weird to be a star with with nothing. You know, what did he get out of it? Really nothing. And and a star for the worst moment of your life. Exactly. So you never get away from it. Uh, maybe if if we lived in the same town or, or something, you know, where I was there every day. But, you know, he's not one of my children and he's not young anymore. He's probably in his, he's in his early 40s. So, you know, so I, 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 I broke it off. I don't know what I mean. Obviously, I hope he's safe and sound. I don't know if he's still in prison or not. It's great to hear that uh, that you are doing so well, that uh, you are making progress in your life. Um, I'm interested in your in your style. Has it has it evolved at all in the last year and change? Style in terms of fashion style. What are you, I, what are you I, wearing? Is what I'm asking. I I like strutting out. I mean, I do. And, You're still uh, strutting. I'm, I still strut. I still wear a lot of leather, which I love to wear. I mean, I still love beautiful clothing. I'm not buying nearly uh, as much. I've cut down a lot. I, I miss it. But, you know, I love interesting, beautiful, exotic things. I mean, I just like, maybe I like the attention, although it's more, this is me. I, where did it come from? I don't, I don't fucking know. Uh, but it's there. And why deny it? You know, uh, some people love the look. Some people think it's insane. Uh, I've, you know, I've toned down probably a little bit just because some of the styles were really outrageous. But, you know, I mean, this closet's filled with gorgeous leather jackets and gorgeous uh, 
suit jackets and, and sport coats from, from Gucci. I bought nothing from Gucci this year. It really killed me. I mean, I really, really miss it. So I do, you know, strut out. And that's, that's, that's a part of me. That's a good part of me. And I don't want, you know, you just can't sort of change your life and say, well, I'm going to walk out of everything. Now, I will say in Oregon and Washington State, there's much, you know, Gucci is really, A, it's not a big deal there. B, it's really kind of frowned upon. <laughs> and, you know, so if you walk out in Gucci, they're going to think you're really insane. But, what I, you know, one of the fun things about coming out here is I can strut it out. And, you know, I, I still do. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. Because it did feel in that story like there was a lot going on, but that part of it felt true. Oh, that part was totally true. I mean, I, I you know, and people, what's that about? I, I don't know, but I love it. I mean, I, and I like, like, I, I like high fashion. Um, now I'm in the process of trying, I mean, I have a storage locker in Philadelphia that probably has, I don't know, 150 pieces in it that I am trying to sell because it's just sitting there. Uh, but then I look at them and <laughs> say, oh, they're like my little children. I can't get rid of them. Although some of them are really fucking outrageous, but I think they're really cool. You know, and I'm open about that. Women's clothes, men's clothing, who cares as long as you like it? You know, I don't, it doesn't bother me. I feel like you uh, know yourself, you're, you're, you're as close as you've ever been. I, I, think I'm, I think I'm close as I've ever been to being feeling centered. The feeling of a peace and an honest tranquility. I don't want to say that um, I don't get agitated. I get more agitated here. I get more anxious here. I think when, the further east I go, there's more the sense of what have I done lately. But more centered, more listening genuinely, uh, more trying to do things that you know I wouldn't do, like learning how to ride a motorcycle, like you know, hiking. I even do, a, I, I mow the lawn. I mean, you know, uh, I don't, I sort of garden a little bit. My wife gets me out there. Um, and just feeling, you know, enjoy and enjoying life to the degree that I can um, enjoy it. Any, any project is going to, is going to, you know, be anxiety producing, but learning how to try to, as a, in terms of the advice I gave, just trying to work through it, just work through it and not making it painful. You know, you cannot pick, make things painful. You cannot have to agonize over everything. Maybe you'll even make it fun. And if you make it fun and that fun is expressed on the page, uh, it may be pretty good. I want to go back to uh, confidence as a writer sure. for a second. It is genuinely wonderful to hear that you have, you have found a place uh, where you are feeling more confident not every writer a has the kind of work under his or her belt that you do uh, or be the means to buy a nice house in a beautiful place that can calm them down and get out of this race right i do want to point out that that th this house costs a lot less than what we were the house in philadelphia i mean part of it was downsizing this is not a big elaborate house that that's fair my question is what your advice might be to yourself as a younger writer or to younger writers in general about how to find that confidence or at least overcome that fear, how to think about your writing when it can feel so overwhelming? Look, I mean, you know, and I, I don't think this is specific to writers, but I think it is a little bit more specific because the creative act is so fraught with peril. You know, you can do something wonderful and no one pays attention to it. You can do something terrible, and a lot of people pay attention to it. There's an agony to it. There's a um, remoteness to it. There's an isolation to it. There's a loneliness to it. 
And confidence is the key. I mean, it's the key to everything, I think, in terms of, of profession, really, probably in terms of, uh, of living. And when I just tell myself, you know what, just do it. And don't do it like every cent. Just, just get it out on paper. Don't attach all this, is it going to be good? Is it going to win a National Magazine Award? All the things that people, is it going to sell? Is it going to be made into a movie? Just, just relax. Be disciplined enough to write for a certain number of hours per day, whatever you're comfortable with. Some people can do 10, I can't. Some people do six, some people do five. After four, I'm pretty much uh, tapped out, and then you go back over what you've written. There's no worse feeling, and I've, I've done this, and I still do it time to time, then you look at the computer screen, and it's empty four hours later. That's a terrible feeling, and that only makes fear worse. And the only way to conquer the fear, at least, is just do it. And I guarantee you, even if it sucks, and a lot of times it does suck, you will feel so much better because now you have something to work with. Now you have something physical to play with, to change. But there is that relief that you have been through the agony. Now you have that first draft, and it may suck, but all right. And and, and forget the negative. You're going to see, you know what? It's not so bad. You know what? I, I see a, wait, I see a pathway here. This, you know, shift here, a scene here, a section here of the book. I, I, I see an interesting pathway. I, well, you know what? Maybe I see a better way to tell the narrative. And you, I guarantee you that you will feel, I think, much better. And, you know, hopefully you'll, you'll hit that curve of, of delicious, euphoric, orgasmic confidence. You're not going to hit it on every story. And, you know, people say, How is, how's it going? And say it honestly, fine. It's going fine. And once you have something palpable and physical, it, it's going to make you feel better. And then it really gets, I think, fun. Because now when you're writing, you're, you're, you're doing what you have. You're piecing together. You're pulling stuff out. You're putting stuff in. And that is always much much less anxiety-provoking than getting out that, that fresh first start. Is that pretty much your plan now? Just, just do it? Yeah, I mean, when I did the magazine pieces, um, I just did them. I mean, I, you know, I did them. And um, screenwriting, is, which I've done in the past, is different because it's, it's sort of like it's not starting over, but it's such a different form, and I kind of get out of shape. But, yes, that's what I do now. What would you say to uh, a writer who is maybe worrying... Uh, quite a bit about what people think of their work. Look, I mean, you're always going to, you, you do worry about what, uh, you know, people think. Critics are, are critics. You know, some have loved what I've done. Some have hated what I've done. I almost think that's good because I think if if, if, if there's universal opinion about it, that it's all great. I actually think there's a way to do that by uh, not taking, taking chances when you write. My editor called it kind of auto-writing. You know, good writers can write in kind of an autopilot way. It's not very inspirational. It's not very original, and critics, uh, critics like that. Plus, it's very important what the Wall Street Journal writes because they're always first, and everyone imitates the Wall Street Journal. Um, so either hope you get a great review in the Wall Street Journal or hope that the Wall Street Journal doesn't review your book. But... You shouldn't worry about what people think. Here's, here's what I think you should worry about is, is getting people to read it. What does that mean? Storytelling. What does that mean? Thinking about narrative. What does that mean? Vivid writing. What does that mean? Taking you into a subculture that no one knew existed, whether it's baseball, whether it's Barbaro, whatever the hell it is. 
um, worry about that. Worrying about in newspapers, I felt we we, we were in a, and it's probably maybe I think it's a it's less of a problem. I think they almost discovered it. It was such an insulated world. Hey, that was a great story. Hey, that was a great story, and no one really said, well, maybe a great story inside the newsroom. Anyone fucking read it? Did anyone really care? So if you concentrate on the tools, and it's not said because I'm you know, doing this with you, of narrative, getting people to read it, trying to develop character, cutting. I'm, I, I'm much better at cutting stuff out. That's what you should worry about. Why is there a book business? Because no one knows what the, what the public's going to like. You know, if everyone knew what the public liked, there'd be four books written a year. Same with movies. And, you know... Uh, you miss a lot, you, you, you hit a lot, you know, and criticism of others is criticism of others. They have every right to say what they want. It's going to be, you know, arbitrary. Uh, look, at, I, was, I was at the racetrack yesterday at Saratoga, and I was thinking about it. And, you know, for all these can't-miss shots, how many people who, who go there for, like, hours and hours and study the racing form, they, they, they all get it wrong. And, you know, look at the variants of things that people like. There are always 30% of critics who hate it. You know, so what are you going to do? What are you, what are you going to do? Don't write for others, but don't, I don't believe you should only just write for yourself unless you're just completely, you know, brilliant and on a different plateau. Worry about getting people to read it because if you write something that people don't want to read, that to me is, is debilitating. And really, you want people to read what you write. Well, I'm looking forward to reading the uh, next thing that you write. Well, that's good. I hope so. It's, I think it's coming out, I think, in a month. You know, I wrote a, It was a very gentle note to Graydon Carter saying, when's the story going to run? And Graydon, who I actually adore, said, stop getting your tit in a ringer. It'll run, <laughs> which I thought was great. And I've had a great run with them, and I will say that we all talk doomsday. It's still a great place to work. So I feel very fortunate. Um, in having that. And look, if anyone out there has any good book ideas, uh, my email. Can I give out my email? <laughs> sure. They can't contact you on Twitter. No, I, I'm not on Twitter or Facebook. You can contact me by email. Buzz.Bissinger, B-I-S-S-I-N-G-E-R, at gmail.com. Because I often find funky, great ideas come from other people. You know, just good stories. A piece of advice to anyone who uh, might email Buzz. If he says no or uh, just doesn't write you back. Just keep writing him an email like every six yeah, be weeks. Like, be, be, like, be like Max. Just, if you write an email every six weeks, but I, I, sometimes they fall through the cracks. I do try to write um, everyone back because you know, they've taken the effort to uh, write you. If it's a really good idea and I do it, there will be no cut, but there will be a lot of gratitude. Silent. Thank you for finally doing this, man. I appreciate it. Well, you know, I appreciate your, um, your coming to uh, Philly. Uh, you're much more handsome and younger than I thought, by the way. I thought you'd be like 60s, sort of like a professor who has, who's had much better days. Plus, Max Linsky just sounds like a, it sounds like a Woody Allen character, basically. I had this moment. I, I uh, met a guy at like a party who listened to the podcast. And we were talking for a while, and he was like, what do you do? And I was saying, whatever, whatever. And I was like, oh, yeah, I do this podcast. And, uh, and he was like, oh, wait a second are you Max? And I was like, yeah. And he was like, oh, I thought you were going to be like a fat dude in a fedora. I didn't think of fat dude in a fedora. I thought you'd be like 60s and sort of, you know, little hippie-ish and kind of scraggly gray hair and, and somewhat groomed, but I don't know if you had showered in the past day or two. And, you know, dedicated to this strange thing called long-form journalism, which probably has as much interest to people as uh, the Phillies today. Clearly, I'm not uh, quite... No. 
putting out the honest impression of myself. No, you're not. You, I, think, I think you need to hire a PR person. I think you have to work on your public persona. Although your voice is pretty, is pretty on the young side. But no, you have to do something. Because no one would possibly know that you're... Well, they would know what you're 35 or they're listening to. I don't know. How many, how many people listen to this? Like four? Yeah, like uh, 50,000 a week. Really? I didn't want to tell you that until then. Is that right? Yeah. All right. Well, then you do you ever put pictures out of yourself? Not really, no. I mean, Max Linsky sounds like a guy out of the 30s. You know, a Damon <laughs> Yunion character who eats at the Carnegie Deli like twice a week and gets a big pastrami sandwich. I've and been thinking still... about that a lot, man, uh, because I'm... I'm serious. Kid. I'm going to have a kid. <gasps> when? That's she's, great. She's due Thursday. No! Really? Congratulations. Yeah, I was petrified. Oh, that's great. Oh, she God. was going to go into labor. Like in yeah, because right if now, you canceled this, if I had canceled it, there's it no way it was going to happen. <laughs> no way. No way. Well, that, congratulations. I've been thinking a lot that's about uh, Linsky. What you name? What you name someone named Linsky? Do you live in New York? Yeah. Where? Brooklyn. Uh, infamous Brooklyn. Yeah. Is it too like, gentrified now? What do you think? I, I mean, I am a gen- I am a gentrified. I don't know Brooklyn at all. It's amazing. I live in uh, Fort Greene. Uh, gentrified neighborhood. It's amazing. What's, I mean, when I grew up in the 50s, 60s and 70s in New York, you know, Brooke, you, you would never, ever have any rational reason to go to Brooklyn. Ever. And now it's just exploding. Every great restaurant's in Brooklyn. And now there are all these backlash stories that it's getting ruined. And yeah, you got to move the back, to Queens. The, so it was a story in the time. I read some times. This, yeah, it was about people who can't afford the rent anymore. Uh, well, you have a lot of money. Do you make a lot doing this? No. Because if you did... Uh, I'd start buying in Queens. I think Staten Island is the move. Ah, no. Ah, there's beautiful houses been, out ah, there, man. It's the worst. No, it. no it there's is, beautiful houses. I know in New Dorp and all those fucking shitty ass places. Forget Staten Island. No, that's not going to happen. Max, I'm telling you, you got a kid. You have to be more responsible. You can make some money. Queens. I'm telling you, Queens. If you have 50,000 people, you probably like, what, three or four million a year, right? Yeah, yeah, it doesn't really work like that with this, though. <laughs> well, it actually was a lot of fun, so thank you for coming. Thank you, Buzz. Thanks for listening to Longform. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Our editor is Jenna Weiss-Berman. Jenna, I'll never doubt you again. Our intern this week, Rachel Mabe. Thanks to my guest, Buzz Bissinger, for finally relenting. That was the best Monday morning I've had in quite some time. Thanks also to our sponsors. You guys, this writer's residency that Tiny Letter is funding is amazing. If you're a writer, you really should apply. Ten days, all expenses paid at the Ace Hotel in Palm Springs residency.tinyletter.com go check it out I'm one of the judges and I told them I would only do it if I could give preferential treatment to long form podcast listeners so now you have no excuse apply and finally go download the brand new long form app it's 100% free it's for iPhone and iPad and it nearly cost Aaron several vital organs Uh, seriously we worked very hard on this app our goal was to build a home for the kind of writing we're talking about uh, on the show every week and I think we did exactly that it's good I, I genuinely believe that it is good and that you will like it. Uh, please check it out. And if you do like it, tell your friends. Okay, we'll be back and strutting out next week. Before.